Good morning, everybody. It is April 23rd, 2021. It's about 11.05 a.m. on the East Coast. If you're joining us live, there will be question and answer coming up in about 30 minutes. Today, I have a few announcements before we begin our podcast formally. Um, first of all, today would have been my father's birthday. My dad was lost to complications of HCM back in 2008. And interestingly, my dad, um, prior to taking a turn with kidney failure, um, was a patient of the Cleveland Clinic. And had he not had been there back when he was in 2006, we probably would have lost him a lot sooner. So I'm thinking about my dad today, my hero, and uh, one of our HCM warriors who we lost too soon. So that being said, um, today I said we're going to talk about obstruction. But before we do that, I have something really important to talk to you all about. Um, and that is, there is a survey on the Facebook page. I'll put another copy of it up after this event because we need your feedback. There's a group called ICER, I-C-E-R. You can look up exactly who they are and what they do. But it has to do with the economic impact of new drugs to market. And they're trying to get a better understanding of the HCM community. And we need every HCM patient, clinician, anybody interested in HCM care or management to answer these questionnaires and make sure that when they're evaluating the cost of new therapeutics in this space, that they hear your voice and they understand what the burden of disease is and what you would find beneficial in a new treatment. So I'm asking everybody to please participate in that process. Um, secondly, you're getting another email from me today if you're on our list and I'll be posting it onto this Facebook page shortly. Sorry about the inundation of emails lately, but we got a lot going on. We're having an open house on May 15th uh, here in New Jersey, and we're going to be filming your stories of life with HCM for our up and coming new website. We tried to do this virtually, but the consistency of the video was a little wonky and we need consistent lighting. So we're going to do it here in the office. We're looking for 50 HCM patients to join us on May 15th in a socially distanced, safe environment. And we're we're providing lunch and conversation with your big hearted friends. So we all need you to do a survey for that to tell us what you've known about HCM, what your experience has been. And uh, you should be getting an email on that right about now in your email boxes. So thank you for that. Without further ado, I'm going to introduce Dr. Harry Lever, who is so spiffy today and coming to us with his tie on. And we're gonna talk about obstruction. Today, we're going to be showing some slides to explain anatomy. For those of you listening to podcast after the live broadcast, uh, thereby podcasting does not have video content typically. We're going to try to put some images up in the podcast cloud. However, if you want to see the images, come to Facebook or YouTube um, and you'll be able to see the images there. So you can join us at 4hcm.org. It'll be there when we relaunch the website or on our YouTube channel, which is HCMA USA or 4HCM on YouTube. So without further ado, Dr. Lever, what is obstruction and why is it so complicated to understand? All right, the first slide is a normal heart. This is the septum, normal thickness. This is the mitral valve, anterior leaflet, posterior leaflet. These are what are called tendinii. They're like little strings that attach the mitral leaflet to what we call papillary muscles that anchor the valve. Now, patients with uh, symptoms of outflow obstruction usually have shortness of breath, 
They may have chest pain, which is angina, palpitations, which is like racing or skipping of the rhythm. You can have dizziness or actually pass out. And of course, there can be sudden death. But uh, you may have a heart murmur. You can have unexplained thickness unexplained hypertrophy on an EKG, or you may have what appears to be an old heart attack. Now, this is just to show you that you can, this is a young patient. We recognized years ago that younger people tended to have thicker hearts. Um, and here we can show you it moving with mitral valve hitting the septum. This is what we call SAM or systolic anterior motion. And here is an older patient with very localized thickening, and yet they have, it has a, this patient has obstruction just as the one that's very thick. So we've got to really look at that anatomy to see the difference. I'm going to pause you for one second. Let's go back to that image. And I want to just give a little bit of a descriptor for those who are listening on podcasts. So what we're seeing in an image is a very thick left uh, ventricle specifically in the septum. And we're seeing that the mitral valve is reaching back and touching the septum and creating a blockage of the blood flow leaving the heart. And that is in the young heart. And in the older heart, we're seeing more, I refer to as a knuckle of hypertrophy at the outflow track. And it's a smaller region of the muscle that is hypertrophied and it's less obvious that it's HCM on imaging because the whole septum isn't thick. Uh, that about sum it up, Harry? Yep. Okay, next slide. Second. Hold on. And let's just skip this the next one. And what we saw was that the elder, elderly predominantly had this, what we called an ovoid left ventricle. Uh, the younger people had what we called reversal of septal curvature. Older people had dysproxical hypertrophy, and the old people had calcification around the mitral valve. And this is just a, a quick summary of, this is the normal heart here, normal thickness of the heart, normal right ventricle. This is a very thick heart, uh, septum thick, lateral wall thick. This is the one we call reversal septal curvature in the young here versus, oh, versus uh, this one, which is normal. And then here is that proximal bulge. Harry, that, I'm ask that you knuckle. To point your face towards the camera. All right. We're losing right. the video on occasion. All right. Okay. Now, so we concluded that the clinical signs and symptoms of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy in the elderly and young were similar, but the structure of the heart of the elderly was different than that seen in the young. And it made it look like we were dealing that with two two distinct diseases that may have differing pathophysiology and uh, natural history. So now let's go ahead. Let's talk about the physiology and hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And uh, you can have resting obstruction, latent obstruction. That means it's not there all the time, but it can be produced and no obstruction. Hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is not just a thick septum. There is a syndrome of outflow tract obstruction or oakum or just obstructive cardiomyopathy where there is just, which I'm gonna show you some quick anatomy where there's just obstruction, but not a thick heart. 
So let's go ahead. What, what makes up the problem is the ventricular muscle, the papillary muscles, cordy tendinii, and the mitral valve and how they interact. I'm going to pause yeah. here for a second because mm -hmm. these are terms that we don't typically use a lot in HCM. So you went through this quickly at the beginning. Uh, I'm just going to ask you for a little deeper explanation of what is a papillary muscle and where is it? I'm going to have a slide, another slide of the first one again. Okay. I'll show it again. Perfect. Let, let's show it again. Okay. Now, so you can have hyper, you can have thickening or hypertrophy of the, you may have no hypertrophy. You can have proximal, proximal or at the beginning of that knuckle, the whole septum can be thick. It can be concentric. That means the whole septum is thick. It may just be the lateral wall of the heart or the, the tip of the heart, the apex. Now the mitral leaflets can be normal. You can have the large one that's anterior or a large posterior. And then papillary muscles, that again is what holds those, uh, the leaflets in place. They, they can be located what we call on the side, which is or in the middle, which is medial, lateral on the side, or can be in the tip of the heart, which I'm gonna show you what that is. You can have more than, more than two papillary muscles, they can be of different size and different strength. Uh, the, the papillary muscles, there can be direct attachment of the leaflets without those strings that I showed. Uh, there can be, they can be in the tip of the heart or the apex, or they may be attached to the septum. Now, uh, SAM, that's that anterior leaflet motion. Uh, the, uh, if it's SAM related, that means that, uh, uh, that the mitral valve is hitting the septum. And then we look at that direction of the leakage to see what is the cause. And we'll go into that in the picture. Let's go ahead. Now, the mitral valve is like a sail in the wind. And it, it depends on how the anatomy is, how those sails move. Let's, we'll skip this one. Now let's go through the, why, the anatomy again. Here is a normal septum. This is the mitral, anterior mitral leaflet with the strings attached to the leaflet and then to the papillary muscle. And here's the posterior leaflet with similar strings attached to the uh, papillary muscle here. So there's supposed to be two papillary muscles. Usually two. And they're supposed to be situated on either side of the apex. Really. Right, right. And the four-day strings lead up to the end of the mitral valve. And the job of the papillary muscle is to assist the mitral valve in the opening and closing process. Is that about right? Yep. Okay. Now here's a little move. A little movie. We're going to show you how this moves. So the okay. so here's the mitral valve. The two leaflets come together, and the blood is going out this way. There's no leakage backwards through this aortic valve. Play it again. And there's no leakage of the mitral valve. So this is absolutely normal. Normal thickness of the septum and the lateral wall. And this is how the mitral valve works. Okay? Okay. Now let's go to the next one. Now, this is what happens in a typical case of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy with a thick septum normal anterior leaflet, normal posterior leaflet, and the cordy are attached properly as well as the papillary muscles. 
So all the only thing that's abnormal here is the fixed septum and the mitral valve is coming up and hitting. Okay. Mm -hmm. Next, this is a movie of that. And we see here that the mitral valve comes up, hits this septum, and there's some leakage of that. When, there's some leakage of that when the um, uh, when the mitral valve closes, and the the blood is going out through the aortic valve. There's no leakage backwards associated with the aortic valve, but there is leakage of the mitral valve when those two leaflets come and hit the septum. They slightly separate, and you get a little leakage. So you get obstruction, leakage, and then the blood goes out. And that leakage would be referred to on an echocardiogram as mild mitral regurge. Right, that's right. Okay, next. Here we have a thick septum. This one, the anterior leaflet is elongated. It's longer than it should be. This posterior leaflet is normal. The papillary muscles are normal. So we've got a thick septum and we've got a long anterior leaflet. Next, here we have a problem where we have a thick septum, we have a normal mitral valve, but the papillary muscles are what we call apically displaced. They're stuck in the tip of the heart right here. And when that happens, it tends to move this leaflet closer to the septum and you can have the mitral valve striking the septum, even though the normal mitral valve itself is normal. So that's what we call apically displaced papillary muscles. Then we have here a normal septum, but apically displaced papillary muscles. And you can still get obstruction just from apically displaced papillary muscles. And sometimes when we have that problem, the surgeon has to do some maneuvers to move those papillary muscles a little bit to try to get them in a position so this mitral valve doesn't hit the septum. Let's go ahead now. Now we've got one where the septum is absolutely normal. The papillary muscles are normal, but we've got a long anterior leaflet and we get obstruction here. So here is a situation where the septum's not thick at all and the anterior leaflet is, is elongated. It gets in the way and it hits the septum. And in a situation like that, the surgeon has to repair the mitral valve and many times they just shorten the leaflet. We are now seeing many more cases involving the mitral valve. And sometimes we, the surgeon has to repair that mitral valve to get it out of the way. It shortens the leaflet and the obstruction goes away. So here's a hypertrophic, what we would call hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but there is no thickening of the muscle. So this is a very complicated concept. So this is HCM without the H, in a, in right. a sense. Um, in my experience, a lot of these septums are in that 13, 14, maybe 15 right. millimeter zone. So they're a little thicker than normal, but they don't meet that 15 millimeters of hypertrophy to meet the typical definition. Of That's right. That's so right. they're a little thick, but they're not a lot thick. But sometimes they can pop these really high gradients, which seems crazy. Right. How could you get that big of a gradient with such a little bit of hypertrophy? Um, and that's where, you know, I've had this conversation a thousand times, if not 10,000 times, anatomy matters. Understanding your mechanism of obstruction is as important as understanding the fact that you are obstructed and your treatments will vary based upon your anatomy, not your wishes. 
Right. And this is a great indicate. This picture is a great illustration of how, you know, somebody like this might say, "Well, I don't have a lot of hypertrophy. I'd rather just have an an alcohol ablation to get rid of my obstruction." But will that work in this case? No. No. Absolutely not. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Next, this is a a movie of that with an. And here we see there is. This, this mitral valve is coming over. It does, it, the way the drawing was done, it doesn't quite hit the septum, but you can see this anterior leaflet moving towards the septum. Mm -hmm. And there's leakage of the mitral valve. So once we eliminate this, we get, we get this leaflet shorter, we can bring the leaflets closer together and, and the obstruction goes away and the leakage goes away. I'm gonna ask that it's often asked of me, typically of people who aren't seen at high volume centers. Many people with HCM seen in low volume centers are recommended to have mitral valve replacement as their therapy, right. um, as opposed to doing a full myectomy and mitral valve repair. Can you explain why repair is better than replacement for most patients? Well, we, the, 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 usually the surgeon can repair it in such a way that, uh, you won't need an, another operation. And the problem with some of these artificial valves are they wear out over time and you need a new valve. So uh, if somebody tells you, you need your mitral valve replaced, you'd better go somewhere else and have somebody else look at it who's used to repairing mitral valves. We, we learned about repair of mitral valves uh, uh, long before we applied it to hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. One of our surgeons was interested in repairing torn mitral valves. And our surgeons that deal with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy learned how to, to repair the mitral valve in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So nowadays it's rare that we replace a mitral valve in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. It used to be quite common many years ago, but not now. And as a matter of fact, about 20% of the cases that come to the clinic need something done to the mitral valve, at least you know, uh, and that may be partly related to Lisa because that's, she sends us cases where she's heard that maybe the mitral valve needs to be replaced. So maybe we're getting a, you know, a little skewed view of that, but we, our surgeons really know how to repair these valves. Well, that's, a that's an HCMA thing, not an LISA thing. Now here's, here we have combination where we have thick septum, long anterior leaflet and apically displaced papillary muscles. Now, sometimes sometimes we can just, if the septum is thick enough, even though the leaflet is, is, is elongated, sometimes we don't have to touch it, the, the mitral valve. And what the surgeon will do is he'll remove as much muscle as he thinks is reasonable. And then he will, uh, will retest the heart in the operating room with an echocardiogram that's in the esophagus and see what, what's going on. If there's no further, if there's no obstruction, we stop the surgery. If the patient still has a problem, we go back on bypass and he'll do something to the microphone. And hopefully in that case, we won't have to do anything to the papillary muscles, but rarely we've got to do all three things, but that doesn't happen. That's very rare, but you can, but you can see here that you can have all different sizes and shapes. Perfect. Now here's a, here's a book. Here's a movie of an apically displaced papillary muscle. And this is one way to fix it, is to move that, move that papillary muscle out of the way 
that, that needle is really the surgeon's gonna sew that back to the back wall. And that's how he fixes that. So it's just another maneuver in the ventricle. Right. right. So step one, they would get rid of the, the hypertrophy in the septum. Right. Step two, they can visualize the rest of the chamber better. If there's a need to do some work on the papillary muscles, I have seen them binded together and stitched together so that they can move in a uniform fashion when there's bifed. I have seen them tap it to the, to the wall and stitch it in there. Uh, I've seen them cut out and replaced it appears. Uh, that one always confused me, but I've seen a lot of different things happen with papillary muscles in op reports. Right. So there's a lot of things that can be done to help the geometry. I think, I think about the, the left ventricle as just a, a, a geometry problem. Right. How do you get the fluid in and the fluid out? And when you move one wall, you change the geometry, you change the flow. Um, right. Aortic arch changes can change flow. Lots of different little things can change flow, but we can fix it and normalize it surgically in many cases. Now, some of this is very, very complicated surgery. Um, I don't think any myectomy is less than just one level of complication because it's a rare surgery. Right now in the United States, I believe we're doing about 1,400 a year, um, 220 being done at Cleveland Clinic on an annual basis, uh, which makes it tied with Mayo for the highest producer of myectomies, and then followed by Tufts, uh, NYU, and a few other programs after that. So if you go to a place that does high volume, you're more likely to get all of these unique anatomies dealt with at once. When you go to low volume centers, they tend to look at that septal bulge and maybe the mitral valve a little bit but they're not looking at the paps, they're not looking at the cordae, they're, they're not looking deep enough. And sometimes you get residual gradients from these myectomies because the entire anatomy wasn't addressed. So I'll step off my soapbox now, back to you, Harry. Okay, now here we have apically displaced papillary muscles and an elongated leaflet, but normal septum. So two of the three are abnormal and sometimes Sometimes this one would have to be fixed by shortening the anterior leaflet. Uh, and, and certainly if you have a normal septum, you're gonna have to do something to the mitral valve. So, so shorten the anterior leaflet and then maybe put it, do something to move the one papillary muscle. Perfect. And then here is one where we have a multiple thin septum, normal, normal uh, mitral leaflets, but the papillary muscles are, you know, they're multiple headed and sometimes the surgeon has to bring some of them together. We don't see that very often, but we've had a, very, a few cases of that. I think I said that to you. And then here's another one where they're bifurcated papillary muscles and a thick septum, but a normal So all different sizes and shapes. Let's go on here. And now this is the last one I'm gonna show. This is a, what we call apical or, or mid-cavitary obstruction where both the lateral and the, and the septum are thick. And here there tends to be obstruction right through here. This doesn't move, but you can, we measure with a Doppler, we can see the, the increased flow. And if that happens, our surgeon is able to go in there and just thin out this portion of the septum and get rid of the, these two walls coming together. And that, that, that has been successful in some cases. We don't see this a lot, but it, it certainly does occur. And when we see that, sometimes when this comes together here and they hit, 
the, the wall can sometimes go out and make it look like an aneurysm. Sometimes it is, but, but many times when the obstruction here is relieved, this stops going out the wrong way and that, that gets better. So that- For our listeners, I'm going to describe this picture a little bit more. So the left ventricle looks a bit more like an hourglass where you have an opening at the apex towards the bottom of the heart that there's a, a pocket of blood there. And then in the middle of the ventricle, you see the muscle come together and then there's an opening at the top. And this leads to pressure at the ventricle, at the apex, which could lead to dilation of the apex, an aneurysm to be created, and some non-compliance of the apex of the heart over time, possibly. Now, the role of myectomy in mid-cavity obstruction is still a little to be resolved. Um, there's some programs that won't do it. There's some that don't believe that it changes um, outcomes or trajectory of symptoms. And then there's others that disagree. So we're still in a, in a learning phase here, but this anatomy is probably, I would say as common as an apical HCM, which they're the, le the less common anatomies, but it's really important to know your anatomy. What is your heart doing? Is there cavity obliteration? Meaning that when these two sides touch, we lose the cavity altogether. And in that case, those things need to be evaluated by a specialist team who can assist you in deciding what your treatment options are going to be. Back to you, Harry. All right. And then this is the last one, just showing it really hitting together. Whoops. Really hitting together and bulging out here. But that, that, you know, that, and that, that's, you can see where the surgeon would go right here and remove this. So that's the, uh, so in summary, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has a broad spectrum. Hypertrophy can be in a variety of locations and degree of severity. The leaflets can have varying sizes and severity of leakage of the mitral valve. Papillary muscles can have different locations and orientation, can be multi-headed, can be a direct attachment to the anterior leaflet, and the obstruction can be resting provocable or none. So that's it. So we can put you off of screen share. And okay. then when I'm, I'm going to ask you a little bit about assessment of this anatomy. So we know we use... Let me get rid of the... Oops. I'll get rid of it for you. There you okay. go. Now it's just all right. us. All right. Okay. So we've seen all these different anatomies. We know you can have resting obstruction, which means... <clears throat> when you're doing an echocardiogram and you're laying on a table and you're just sedentary, we can see that connection point. We can see obstruction and measure it. And it is measured in millimeters of mercury or MMHG. So a normal gradient should be zero. Blood should come into the heart and leave the heart unimpeded. When you have a little bit of a gradient, maybe 20, 30 millimeters of mercury, we start watching it a little bit more closely. But if you see a little bit of a gradient at rest, what do we do to see how high that number can be? Well, we can, we can do an exercise echo and do the echo during the stress test and tend to bring that out. We also use a drug called amyl nitrite, which uh, is an inhaled form of nitroglycerin, which tends to drop the blood pressure a little bit, move the walls of the heart closer together and can create obstruction. Or we actually ask the patient to bear down. It's called a valsalva maneuver where they just tighten their stomach muscles and that tends to reduce the blood flow to the heart, tends to shrink that cavity, brings the walls together and can cause obstruction that's not there at rest. 
So, but nowadays we're trying to be more physiologic and we're doing a lot of stress echoes and put, do the echo right at, the, at peak exercise and see what we see. So just get really loud. From a logistics point of view, what we're doing there is we're putting somebody on a treadmill, we're walking them to their capacity, then they jump down on the table, put their arm up, and you try to find that left ventricular outflow tract really fast to see at these high heart rates how obstructed somebody gets. Now we know it's possible for somebody to be non-obstructed at rest, but we can provoke a gradient in these maneuvers and the stress echocardiogram. Um, how important is it to know whether or not a patient is obstructed? Well, it, it's very important because it, uh, uh, if, if you see a patient who, about 35% of the patients have resting obstruction, about 35% have uh, provocable obstruction. So if you, you could miss, if you don't do something to, to stimulate that heart, you could miss about a third of the patients that might have obstruction. So you, you need to do something to cause, uh, to stimulate the heart, whether it's exercise or amyl nitrite or the valsalva maneuver. And the, the advantage of doing a stress echo is it shows us what the blood pressure does during exercise. It, uh, it gives us an idea of what the exercise tolerance is for a patient. I've had many patients come to see me and say they feel fine and you put them on the treadmill and they can't do anything. I've had other patients come to see me who said they feel lousy. We put them on a treadmill and surprisingly, they do better than they thought they could do. So it's very important to be able to see what their exercise tolerance is. Are there symptoms that are specifically related to obstruction as opposed to being general HCM symptoms? Well, you, usually it's uh, shortness of breath and dizziness and that, you know, and, and at times we see, a, if we see a more than 10 millimeter drop in blood pressure, that's a problem. So we look for that. Excuse me. In addition to that, there's a phenomenon in HCM patients that they become more symptomatic after a meal. Right. Why does that happen? Well, that happens because, uh, and we've actually asked some people to go ahead and eat before the stress test, because what happens is the blood is shifted from the heart to the stomach. And the, there, when the blood gets shifted, then the cavity gets smaller and they uh, obstruct because the walls come together. So on some rare cases, we've actually had people eat an hour or two before the test. And particularly if like we think they're gonna obstruct and we don't see them do it, then we'll have them come back for another stress test after they eat. And sometimes it really is dramatic what happens. So I've asked people that they should not study for the test, meaning don't do everything perfectly. Don't make sure that you're hydrated when you typically don't hydrate well. Um, don't try to get the best night of sleep and be, be perfectly prepared for your test. Be normal, be you. And if you do that and you have a little meal before your, your stress echo, and you are normal you, that's what you need to see. We don't need to see you at your best, we need to see you at your normal. So when you're doing these stress echoes, it's you know discussed with your physician in advance, You know how should I prepare for this? And the answer is probably don't prepare for this, just show up and be you. If you try to push and do your best, you're not gonna get your worst day. 
we want to see what you look like when you are home and you've got to run up a flight of stairs to grab something quick right after you had dinner. And that's when you're probably going to be most symptomatic. So show the clinician and, and prepare for your test to be the normal you because this anatomy is dynamic and it shifts. So having said that, there's another phenomena. We know murmurs in HCM typically are related to obstruction, but sometimes the murmur goes away and people think that their obstruction must have gone away because their murmur wasn't present on a particular day. Can you explain the, the, the dynamic of disappearing gradient or disappearing murmurs? Well, it's the same thing. It, it has to do with how much volume you have and how, how the walls are situated. You know, if, if you're dehydrated, the walls will move closer together because uh, there's less fluid. If you drink a lot, then they tend to move apart. So you tend not to have obstruction. And that's, that's what, uh, and, and then when we're examining a patient, we'll have them do what this valsalve maneuver where they bear down so that the, the, the blood doesn't, uh, uh, the, the, the cavity is smaller and then the, the, the mitral valve moves closer to the septum. So I'm gonna ask you how to post their questions and we'll be happy to address a couple of them. While we're waiting for their questions, I'm going to pivot for just a moment because unfortunately two weeks ago we had a storm roll through first it hit you and then it hit me and you lost power and our power was wonky so we missed our last tales from the heart episode so to make up for that i wanted to talk for a moment about some of the stuff we were going to talk about in the last one which was exercise and hcm and how to use wearable technology and things that we might recommend so we know, and we'll take your, your obstruction questions in just a minute. We just want to say that we believe that it's really important to walk and be healthy and to monitor that with technology like a Fitbit or an Apple Watch and that you can share that information with your healthcare professionals and say, this is what I'm doing and this is when I'm symptomatic, but we want you to walk. We want you to be active. We want you to be healthy even with your wonky HCM hearts. So Dr. Lever, is there any particular technology or fitness apps that you think are helpful? Well, the, um, the Apple Watch is certainly helpful. It, it only records though 30 seconds of the rhythm, but at times that's enough and you just have it on your wrist and uh, you can, you can uh, touch it and it'll record the rhythm. It will then generate an email, which you can send to, to your physician. So that's very helpful. We can see exactly what's happening when you exercise. There is another uh, device made by a company called AliveCore and you, it can have, it has now the, the back to the Apple Watch, it only records one lead. The AliveCore has two devices, one that'll record one lead or up to six leads. The problem with those, they're very good in getting, looking at the, the rhythm, particularly for atrial fibrillation and things like that. But the problem with the Alive Core device is you have to be sitting still to record the rhythm. So if you're exercising and you feel something, you, you can't just put it on the table and record the rhythm. And that's one problem. But it is very helpful if you are having rhythm disturbances and, and you, you, know, you get to a place, sit down and record your rhythm and it's still persistent. You can see that I I had a patient uh, not too long ago, early in the pandemic, who uh, turned out had atrial fibrillation, and we were able to see that with the email that he sent. 
We were able to treat the rhythm from a distance. He was in New Jersey at the time, didn't want to go to the hospital because of the pandemic. And I was able to treat his rhythm by, by telephone and email. Okay. So a um, couple things on the wearable technology, and then we'll go back to the questions on obstruction. Um, AliveCore is also known as Cardia Monitor now. Um, so they changed some branding, same company. Uh, that technology is really cool. Uh, like you said, it's limited because you have to kind of stop what you're doing, sit down and take your rhythm, and you might miss the episode. Um, I'm going to be upgrading to the Fitbit uh, Sense, I think it's called. I've heard some positive and negatives on the AFib monitoring. I'm not an AFib patient, so I'm just going to be using it generally, and hopefully I'll get that in the next couple of weeks. It's on my list of things to do. Um, Apple Watch has some really great technology. I've actually had some com conversations with Apple on some possible research in HCM, so stay tuned on that one. Like we don't have enough things on our plate right now. We're going to take on a partnership, hopefully, with Apple. Uh, stay tuned for more information there. Uh, but there's great wearable technology, and I really hope that our community embraces it so that they have the opportunity to collect more data. Many, many times it's a reassurance. You check that rhythm, and yeah, we have some PVCs, and we felt our chest pound, but it's not dangerous, and we're safe, and it's reassuring. So we want to make sure that we capture those reassuring moments as well. Okay, so we have some questions. And first we have Ross, who thinks that a plate of spaghetti and garlic bread before a stress test would be difficult. We are not suggesting a large meal. We're just putting a little bit of food in the gut so that the heart is multitasking, if you will. So don't eat a big spaghetti dinner. That's not what we're suggesting at all. Um, Lutus, um, our, our friend from Sweden, who is one of our partners in one of our new programs called HCMAI to help international programs get organized. Um, stay tuned to the HCMA page for more information on our international outreach. Um, Lutus is asking, is a Valsalva a standard maneuver? She has found it be done differently in different centers. Um, I think what we're really talking about is standardization of HCM um, echo protocols that make the echo more consistent a Valsalva is generally just bearing down and, and how you do that. You want to talk about that, Harry? Yeah, that, that that's right. It's just a matter of bearing down. And when you do, we're taking the picture right as you're doing it. You got you to be taking the picture when the Valsalva maneuver is being done. Okay. So we have an interesting question here from Scott. What is the oldest age patient that alcohol septal ablation is performed and at what age is too old? Is that someone in their mid 80s that has a 0.8 septal and I believe and is very active even going to sporting events when is a trigger for an ablation? So I'm going to dial that one back a little bit, Scott. And I'm going to say, first of all, if the septal measurement is 0.8, you can't have a no. septal ablation. No right through the septum and get a VSD, a ventricular septal defect, AKA a hole in your heart. So that anatomy wouldn't be appropriate for that procedure. So assessment of anatomy prior to any decision is critical in the, Harry, would you agree with that? Yeah, well, usually the, the septal thickness has gotta be greater than 18 and probably less than 25. If it's too thick, the alcohol won't take out enough. And if it's too thin, it'll burn through. So that's a point. 
Absolutely. That'll be better. No problem. Bye. Bye. <laughs> That's, we're, we're delaying the other ones. Oh, perfect. Okay. So the other thing is age. I personally know several HCM patients who've had myectomies well into their 80s. Um, one of my favorite calls was a, a woman who was complaining she couldn't get back to work full time after her myectomy, and she was only able to go back three days a week. She sounded young and spry on the phone. I had no idea how old she was, and she didn't want to tell me. She finally broke down and told me she was 94 years old, and she had her myectomy at 89, and she was only able to work three days a week. And I laughed and I said, I want to be you when I grow up. Um, so I think there's, there's no problem in term in, in age based on the center you're going to and your other comorbidities. In terms of alcohol septal ablation, the oldest I know is probably in their late 80s as well. Right. So age is probably not the driver of the decision here. You want to comment no. on that? No, it's not. No, the, the driver is the thickness of the septum and and what your mitral anatomy is, you know, you got to be careful also if the mitral anatomy is not favorable, if the leaflets are too long, it may not work. So you have to look at everything to decide, you know, the septum can't be too thick or too thin, the leaflets can't be too long. And, you know, it's just a matter of, you know, looking at the anatomy to try to decide. So we're going to package this question. I'm really echoey today. I'm going to package this question a little bit differently, Dwayne. So if somebody's had a mechanical valve after a myectomy and repair, mitral repair from 2009, it's non-repairable at this time, do we ever see that happening? So number one, it sounds like we're talking about a myectomy done you know, 10, 11 years ago. We've learned a lot in a decade. So the repair was probably what could be done at the time. And there is always the possibility of mitral valve deterioration with age. So yeah, it can happen. Um, I don't necessarily know that I would call that a failed myectomy or a failed mitral valve repair time. Your mitral valve takes a hell of a beating over life. I mean, when you think about what it goes through, it's amazing it functions as well as it does regardless of HCM. So I don't think that that's that unusual of a situation. Harry, would you agree, disagree? Yeah, yeah, I, I uh, he said something about mitral valve replacement though. I mean, if- I think he's moving on to mitral valve replacement. Dwayne, if you wish to, to um, send an additional comment, I'm more than happy to take a look at that. Um, but it's, it, it appear, it's sounding to me like it's 12 years later and it's not repairable anymore. The, the right. mitral valve is failing. And then you, then you may have to just replace it. Yeah. We're not saying mitral valve replacement is a terrible thing. We just try to save the valve as much as possible. It's not always possible. And right now, I think we're probably globally talking about an 8% or less mitral valve replacement. Nah, probably like 5% or less mitral valve replacement during myectomy or in a short interval afterwards. Uh, it's, it's not common. It's not common at all. Um, Scott, maybe you do have the wrong measurements. Um, I'm going to take a moment to just go over some of the programming of the HCMA. Uh, we're growing at record rates, and we're a little, we're a little, uh, <laughs> we're a little chaotic here right now, trying to keep up with everything. But our general process is, if you call the office, my staff will do an intake with you, and they'll collect some information. 
you can share your medical records. You can choose not to. It's a bit more efficient if we get your imaging records. Then we set up a call and you and I will talk directly. And we'll point out the numbers on the report that you'll want to go back to your healthcare team with and ask questions and get follow-up information on. We're not here to interpret your reports. We're here to guide you to the information that will help you ask questions, that will help you make decisions. So um, we're more than happy to help you through that process, Scott. Just call the office and get plugged into the system. And we're going to have a brand new website up in the coming month. And it'll be a lot easier for you to contact us and know when we're available and schedule appointments. We're really modernizing our operation. And I'm really excited about some of the things that are coming. So we've got that. Um, Harry, anything else we need to talk about with obstruction? I don't think so. I think we've pretty much covered it. I think we have too, and I think this is going to be a really helpful segment to guide people to in the future uh, so they understand this anatomy better in a quick, down and dirty 45 minute masterclass on obstruction and HCM. Um, I do want to just remind everybody of the events that I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast. Uh, number one, there is a survey from ICER, I C E R. It is an organization that helps evaluate the economic impact of new drugs to market and they're evaluating Mavicampton right now. And I know there's been a lot of buzz in our community about what this drug might be able to do for specifically those with obstruction. It is critical that patients share their input in this process. This is true patient advocacy 101. We need to be at the table and explain to these uh, individuals assessing value and economic impact, what it is truly like to live with HCM and what we would see as a benefit. So I'm asking everybody to take a few minutes to fill out that survey. I probably would have written the survey differently had I created it myself, um, but feel free to speak beyond the questions that they're asking and give them any information that you think is pertinent to them evaluating this drug. That's number one. Number two, this is a special call out and a bit of a plea. On May 15th, the HCMA is going to run an open house, so you can come right here into my little podcast studio. Um, it's going to be a COVID-friendly, safe event. We're going to be um, working with a cafe across the street. We're going to have an outdoor tent. We're going to have indoor socially distanced space. We're going to serve you some lunch at a wonderful Puerto Rican restaurant that just opened up and is like already winning awards in Jersey. And we're going to film some video clips for our up and coming website about the patient experience with HCM. We tried to do this from home uh, with Zoom cameras, but the backgrounds and the lighting were becoming problematic for production purposes. So we're going to have people come to the office and film their clips here on the 15th from 10.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. It is a Saturday. Uh, there's a survey that you'll need to fill out so we can you know, know what you're going to be talking about. We'll provide you with a little bit of training and, and tips. They're going to be short segments, a little bit like a minute a piece on different topics. It'll be a fun day. You'll get to meet other HCM patients. And you know, if you're out in Pennsylvania, if you're up in New York State, uh, drive on out for the day. What else are you doing these days? It's a nice, safe event, and uh, we'll, we'll really appreciate you pop, uh, showing up for that. Ross was kind enough to put the ICER content uh, in there on the feed here. Ross, if you would be kind enough to um, take the post from the private group um, and tag it, uh, tag the link to Survey Monkey in here, that would be fantastic. Um, and then we'll post those out also. You just got an email on the on the uh, Survey Monkey for the May 15th event too. 
So um, Harry, I really appreciate your time today. And I wanna just take a moment to say that Harry has also been serving in a very important capacity behind the scenes acting as an imaging mentor to an up and coming HCM program. And we're working on another one of those relationships moving forward, as well as working to formalize the HCMA mentorship program with our new and upcoming hopeful HCM Center of Excellence program uh, participants. So we know that not every person has access to a high volume of care model right now. We are working to solve that problem. We have 16 applications in-house right now. These programs are from very tiny to pretty established. And it's our goal to make sure that HC, high volume HCM care is within reach of everybody. We know that's a big challenge. Um, in the United States, we definitely are to the, within a four hour drive of most Americans. Uh, we do have some areas that are not four hour drives, they're plane, they're plane trips. So we're trying to work on that. and your support and, and this community coming together as beautifully as it has over the past few years really are making a difference in helping us get our work done and putting care in the hands of those who truly need it. So Ross, thank you so much. And for those who don't know, Ross is our new project manager here at the HCMA. So he's commenting here as Ross, not as HCMA, but he, he's on the team now. Um, and, I'm, and I'm happy to say when possible, the HCMA does recruit from within its own community. Uh, so some of our staff actually are big hearted folks as well. And I think that really does help mix the non big hearted with the big hearted. So we all make sure we're staying patient centric. Um, Harry, we have some interesting stuff we can't talk about yet, but I'm hoping that you and some of your colleagues will come back to talk to us about drug quality stuff. Right. Um, we did have one question here about Lynette no longer being available and where do we get Topral? We're working on that right now. Right. Uh, for right now, where should people go until they hear from us further? Uh, there is a pharmacy in, uh, Lakeland, Florida called Eagle Pharmacy, and you can get the authorized generic right now through them. And I'm hoping within the next week or two, or we're not sure how long, we're going to have some more information and hopefully the drug is going to be more available. We don't, we just don't know, but I'm working on it. So we're working on it. You're working on it. Together, we're working on it. We want to make sure all of those with HCM and all of the people in the United States who take Topral XL, when it's, I believe right now it's the eighth most commonly prescribed drug in America, that we're getting good quality drug, that it's not just a drug, it's really what we think it is. Um, there's a lot of concern over, you know, what's in our food, what's in our drugs, we really need to know these things. And I do hope to have my dear friend Michael Moss join us for a future podcast on his book, Hooked, which explains the back end of the food industry, which kind of ties into this drug quality question and what are we actually ingesting and how can we know? These are really important things. Um, Harry, I thank you so much for joining us once Just again. Just one last thing. Oh, yes, go. Just wanna make sure that everybody who haven't had, has not had their vaccine yet, please get it. It's very important, particularly for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy patients or anybody with heart disease. You do not wanna get this disease with underlying heart disease. So particularly in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, you got to get the vaccine. It's easy to get now, so do it. I can tell you right now in our local mega center, you can just walk in and get a vaccine or 
call that morning for an appointment, I believe is the way it's working right now. So this lots of opened up. We need everybody to get vaccinated so we can all get back to work, to play, to socializing, to raising awareness and to doing the things that we all love to do, especially seeing our friends and families and being able to give hugs. <laughs> I miss hugs. I don't know about the rest of you, but get your vaccine. Thank you for reminding us of that, Harry. That's critically yeah. important. Right. Okay. Thank you to everybody watching on Facebook today. This podcast will be available. It'll stay here on Facebook, but it will also be uploaded to our podcast station. You can pick it up wherever you get your podcasts and it will also be sent over to our YouTube channel shortly. So stay in touch with us, stay informed. If you're available for May 15th and are in a commutable area, please do come join us. We look forward to seeing you. Thank you for listening to Tales from the Heart. For more information on HCM, we encourage you to visit our website at 4hcm.org. Join us online for the conversation on our Facebook page or in our private group. Facebook page can be found at Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And our Instagram handle is at 4hcmwarriors. That's the number 4hcmwarriors. Follow us on Twitter at 4hcm.org. For those members of the LinkedIn community, you may want to follow the conversation on the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association group. Join us today. To contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association, you can call 973-983-7429. You can email us at support at 4hcm.org or visit us online at our website 4hcm.org and send us an email from there. The Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association is located in New Jersey and operates on East Coast time. We would like to thank our sponsors, Myocardia, Invitae, Boston Scientific, and Cytokinetics for their support of this program. The HCMA is partnering with Myocardia, 23andMe, and others to help learn more about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Learn more about these initiatives at 4hcm.org. Invitae, a genetic testing company and a sponsor of Tales from the Heart, is proud to provide free genetic testing to families with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. Please learn more at 4hcm.org. Hey, we know life with HCM can be challenging, and support is critical. That's why the HCMA has created an online support group system to help you and your loved ones live better with HCM. Join us. The HCMA is seeking volunteers on a number of different projects, including our online support group system, our peer-to-peer, big-hearted friend system, and our legislative subcommittee. Please visit 4hcm.org to learn more today. Thank you.